what is up, everybody? Derek M. Cook here with an episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is episode 423 of the podcast, and we are opening up this episode of the show with the song Siptic Eyes. It is from the band The Phantom Dragsters. It's off their new album, At Tiki Horror Island. You can find them over at thephantomdragsters.bandcamp.com or look them up on Facebook or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. However you find them, just make sure you mention that you heard them here on MKR. They were very cool about providing me with this song to play this time around. The entire album's great, but this is one of my favorites. So let's get down to business. What's coming up in this episode of Monster Kid Radio? Well, we've got our regular segments, Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Story, Dr. Tongue's World of Monster Collectibles, and Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, and he's doing another Famous Monsters and Me installment, and this one's really good. And we don't just have one, but two. Two Steves. That's right. We've got Steve Turek joining me to whittle the Frightful Four down to the Terrible Two with the Monster Movie Madness tournament that we're running this year. We are finally down to the championship game. Which two movies make the cut? Stay tuned to find out. And then, as if that's not enough, as if asking you to pick your favorite movie out of these two classics that you're going to hear about here in a little bit, we're also going to announce the nominees for this year's Monster Rally Retro Awards with Stephen D. Sullivan. What are the Monster Rally Retro Awards, or as we call them around here, the rallies? Well, it's a chance for us to honor the best actor, actress, director, movie, and monster in genre cinema. And this time around, we are looking at the years 1935, 45, and 55. Steve and I do kind of go off script, so to speak, quite a bit during the conversation because that's what happens when monster kids get together. And really, when I say Steve and I, both Steve Turek and I do it, and then Steve Sullivan and I do it as well. But yeah, with Steve Sullivan and I, we ended up talking about Robert E. Howard, and oh, just it became a thing. But the nominees are mentioned there, so I'm going to ask you to stay tuned for that as well. And at the end of the episode, I'll make sure that I mention the links that you can use to go vote for your favorite movie for the Monster Madness Tournament, and then where you can go complete your ballot for the rallies this year. There's a lot to get to in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, so much so I'm actually running a little behind. This is going out a little later than normal, so... I'm going to stop talking, I'm going to finish editing, and get this show out, because there's things for you to hear, like this. If you are a murderer, a blackmailer, or a thief, with a face as ugly as sin, and a mind as distorted as the devil's, then this man, he might help you. You could be beautiful, if you would trust me. twice before you join his circus of horrors. He'll change your face beyond recognition, but your soul he'll enslave for all time. Remember, he alone will know the secrets of your evil past, and never will he let you escape alive. Dr. Schuller, who rose to glory in a trail of blood. Erika Remberg, as one of the girls whose face and fate he changed, but not her mind. <laughs> you can't frighten me. These others, 
have been stupid, just plain stupid. What others? The late unlamented ones, who have died so suddenly and so strangely. This is the little girl with the maimed face who was forever beholden to him. I am beautiful. Who grew from innocent childhood into trusting adolescence. I would do nothing to hurt you. I owe you so much. I love you so much. She was his one weakness. This maniac who first healed and then killed. Rosita. What just happened was an accident. Every second is filled with unexpected danger and terror. As a doctor, a specialist in horror, uses his sinister skill to make a circus of criminals perform at his bidding. role-playing or tabletop games? Do you love Monster of the Week shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Supernatural? Do you wish you could find a podcast that combines all of those things? Well, look no further. Thornvale is a narrative-driven actual play podcast following three monster hunters as they fight to keep a small town in Florida safe from the creatures that threaten it. It's full of action. So do you actually say that? Yes, I'm actually going to say that. I'll be like, I'll distract him, you get him. And so I'm going to try... Okay, Bjorn, how are you going to get him? Um, Comedy... I just got this image in my head, now this is me, not Sammy, of this dragon that was collecting materials for a chicken farm. <laughs> <laughs> and truly awful dice rolls. Nope, another oh. three. That's, oh that's my, my second three in a row. Oh my gosh. We're killing this thing. If that sounds like it's up your alley, then look us up wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, Metro Goldwyn Mayer and Seven Arts present the most spectacular woman in the world. She, the immortal goddess whose passion defies time. She, whose cruelty defies description. She, who waits for one man to drown the fires of longing burned within her for 20 centuries and across the desert of lost souls over the mountains of the moon to the Vino city of Kuma. At last he came to bathe with her in the flame of eternal life. She who must be obeyed. She who must be feared. She condemning thousands to tortures beyond your wildest imagination. Frolicking in pleasures beyond your strangest dreams. She overpowering adventure in color. Radio presents Dr. Tongue's World of Monster Collectibles. Spanning the globe looking for monster goo so you don't have to. Dateline the Internet. Hey, all you monster fans out there. We're going to take a little trip down to the old newsstand and see if there's something brewing on the magazine front. I know a lot of you out there are e-readers, streamers, downloaders, and people of that ilk, but... To me, there's nothing like holding a magazine or book in your hands, smelling the paper and ink, flipping through and turning pages, and losing your place and trying to find your spot again. If you're an old monster kid like myself, you're all familiar with the granddaddy of all monster magazines, Famous Monsters of Filmland. 
Our buddy Kenny does great overviews of different classic articles here every week. Much to my surprise, it is still in print, although only on an annual basis. There is also the Famous Monsters Archives, which is a themed issue with old articles as well as new material added in. The future issue is due out in August, and it's all hammer, all the time. With it being printed once a year, I did pick up a current issue on the newsstand recently and fainted from the cover price. I do appreciate the effort, but my wallet sure didn't. A couple other mags that I enjoy on a regular basis, one being Scary Monsters out of Oldemar, California, featuring great wraparound art covers and nice tributes from monster kids everywhere. And as they say, it's by monster kids for monster kids. One of my guilty pleasures out of England is The Dark Side. It tends to be a tad spendy with the currency conversion, but I have found it to be worth the price of admission. It has a nice mix of old as well as new film material, and as it states, it's a magazine of the macabre and fantastic. So they don't really discriminate. This last title I'm throwing out there is not really a monster magazine per se, but it deals in a lot of great stuff monster kids would be interested in. Retro Fan Magazine, published by Tomorrow's Publishing, is the brainchild of Dark Horse DC Comics alum Michael Yuri. This quarterly rag takes a look at the whole pop culture enchilada, from radio, TV shows and movies, great articles on old toys and collectibles, food, I mean, for God's sakes, in the last issue, they had a three-page spread on old TV dinners, as well as interviews with people that have made pop culture history. The latest issue has an in-depth interview with a little-known star named Mark Hamill. I've never really heard of him, but maybe some of you have out there. The next issue, set for an October release, has planned articles on Sven Gulli and an interview with Butch Patrick of Munsters fame. It's a nicely put together and sometimes uber silly magazine, but it definitely worth the read. Artist Spotlight! You remember back when you were a kid getting ready for Halloween? Heading out to the store and perusing all that awesome window decor they had back then? Looking over all the cool ghosts and monsters, that awesome flaming skull, and oh, that cool jointed cat skeleton. Then picking out just the right ones to hang in the windows of your house, hoping to scare the heck out of all the trick-or-treaters. Well, Vintage Spooky Company out of Pauling, New York, is bringing back that old-school Halloween feel with their own assortment of amazingly cool window decorations. These are done in old-school style with more than a tip of the hat to the 60s and 70s vintage Halloween of old. The decorations are all original artwork done by the owner and made in an old-style fashion, die-cut heavyweight paper. Missing the old jointed style figures? Well, Vintage Spooky Company has you covered there as well. Recent versions of The Creature and Old Flat Top Frank are in their catalog as I speak. Give them a follow over on Instagram at Vintage Spooky Company, all one word, or find their storefront over on Etsy at Vintage Spooky Company. I guarantee you will not be disappointed. Spotlight on Vintage Monster Toys! 1961. The Etch-A-Sketch was first introduced, as well as the Fisher-Price Chatter Telephone. Betsy Wetsy was popular with the girls, and the Johnny Reb Cannon and Flintstone playsets for the boys. Then, it made its appearance on the scene. Marks introduced The Great Garloo. It was the groundbreaking large plastic monster toy kids had wanted, but didn't know it yet. Developed by the great Marvin Glass and Associates for Mark's Toys, the Great Garlou towered over all other toys at the time. Standing nearly two feet tall and resembling what best could be described as the Gill Man on steroids. 
Garlu is a battery-operated engineering marvel. Sporting a stylish leopard print loincloth, Garlu featured some eight different commands he could perform for his master, the holder of the battery-operated controller. Forward and back, left and right, he could bend over and then pick up items off the ground in his foam-padded hands. Adding to this fashion plate of a monster was a real chain bracelet and a swinging groovy Garlu medallion around his neck. Marketed as a movie TV monster, Garlu was, well, just Garlu. Not really based on any existing known movie monsters at that time, he was simply created to cash in on the big bug movies that were all the rage in the mid to late 50s, as well as the monster craze that was soon to reach a fever pitch in the 60s. Also from Mark's Toys, following in his dad's footsteps that same year, was the son of Garlu. Looking much like his father, this smaller wind-up toy stood approximately 5 inches tall, so he definitely had some growing to do to catch up to his dad. And when it comes to the son, Marks issued a couple different versions of him. One has an all-tin body with the medallion Son of Garlu printed and lithoed right on that body, and then the variation was cast in plastic with a separate plastic medallion hanging around the neck by a chain. All three of these dudes, big and small, are super cool and highly sought after on the monster collectibles market. Got any sneak peeks of monster merchandise coming out soon? Drop Derek a line and he'll forward it along to me here at MKR. And hey, if you're interested, you can see what's happening at my toy shop over on Instagram at Dr. Tongues Toys or on my private account, MonsterMan64, to see some of the cool stuff I pick up from my personal collection. This is Mark, Dr. Tongue Peterson, saying, Happy Monster Collecting, everybody. I'm out. Peace. Space is a picture that you'll long remember for its blending of science and fiction, for its eerie terror, and for its story of an invasion from another planet that's almost beyond imagining. <laughs> I tell you, from its size and its appearance, this thing came from outer space. I even have reason to believe that there's some form of life in it. What do you want? What are you doing? Let me see you as you really are. In 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. 
If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. This is the voice of a woman dreaming of her lover. Please, darling, me close. I love you so much. And this, a woman having a nightmare. Let me out! What are dreams? What do they mean? When you dream, you wander into another world where everything is strange and terrifying. When you dream, you too become a nightwalker. The Nightwalker brings Robert Taylor and Barbara Stanwyck together again in the film Shocker of the Year. Yes, I do have a lover. Tell me his name. I wish to God I could, but he's only a dream. And now, a warning from producer William Castle. Our new picture, The Nightwalker, may force you to dream of things you're ashamed to admit. If you can't stand your own dreams, don't see The Nightwalker. The Nightwalker. Hello, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we're going to look at the third part of Famous Monsters and Me, entitled Forey and Me. The editor of Famous Monsters, Forrest J. Ackerman, was affectionately known as Uncle Forey, and he was truly like an uncle for me. I cannot pinpoint the exact time I took Forey as a mentor in my life. I just remember wanting to be like him. He often spoke against the vices of smoking and drinking, and thanks to him, I never participated in those activities. I remember at one point when I was going to get new glasses. I wanted a pair like he was using in the 70s, an unusual circular frame that were actually for women. I could not find frames like those, so I settled for the 50s and 60s dark on top, clear on the bottom horn rims he used in the early days of Famous Monsters. In 1978, my dad took me on a road trip through California. This was my chance to visit the Acker Mansion in Hollywood. I sent a postcard to Forey and he sent a quick reply. The time and place were set. My dad bravely ventured into the Hollywood Hills. How did he do it without GPS? And we arrived at the door. Unringing the bell, a voice came over the intercom. Who dares disturb the Acker Monster? After nervously announcing my presence, he opened the door and I entered the museum-like home of Forey Ackerman. What I remember most is a life-size model of the robot Maria from Metropolis, and the fact that he didn't show me some of the Harryhausen artifacts I had seen in FM, which was somewhat disappointing. It was a nice visit, he was a kind, soft-spoken gentleman, but the memories of that time have faded. The same year we moved to Pittsburgh, and I found out that Forey was coming to the Berg for a convention close to my home. I was excited for the chance to see him again. When we met in the convention center, I asked, Do you remember me? He looked at me, and after seeing a button I had on, he declared, Oh yes, you are the Harryhausen fan. I was a disappointed 14-year-old. Since then I have forgiven him, as I know how an over 50-year-old brain works and I often react to people the same way when they say, Do you remember me? I know it may be controversial to praise Forey in light of the revelations of his inappropriate behavior towards women. All I can say is that in my childhood and adolescence, he was a light, a guide, and a friend who brought monster kids together via famous monsters. I never knew of his dark side, and I choose to treasure the good and positive influence he had on me. 
new in concept, Sinbad's Adventures. Bold in adventure, Sinbad's feats of heroism. Mighty in conquest, Sinbad's devastating power. The Lost World of Sinbad. See, Reign of the Flaming Death turned the sky into a fiery inferno. The Giant of Amarkand, whose strength is equal to 1,000 men. The Whip Dance of the Virgins in exotic orgies of evil. See, The Lost World of Sinbad. In Colorscope, amazing beyond belief. Welcome to Planet 8. Every two weeks, the crew at Planet 8 Podcast explores the many worlds of science fiction, fantasy, superheroes, monsters, and more. We cover the latest movies and TV shows, as well as old favorites, too. Yeah, like Planet of the Apes. It's a man A man Hey, guys, don't forget Star Trek. Fascinating. Or classic monsters like King Kong, Creature from the Black Lagoon, or Godzilla. <laughs> If it's nerdy or geeky, we'll probably be talking about it. So why don't you tune in and check us out? You can find us on iTunes or other fine podcast providers. Come join the conversation at our website, planet8podcast.blogspot.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. This is Planet 8 Podcast, signing off. End transmission. Nothing can stop it. The Blob. Starring Steve McQueen. It creeps. It crawls. It's slithery. It's slimy. The Blob. Plus Dinosaurus, both in shrieking color. We've been going through a very long period here, probably longer than we originally intended. Uh, the Monster Movie Madness Tournament 2019, and we are now down to our final two films. I am joined by the man, the mastermind behind all of this, Steve Turk. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing wonderful, Derek. I know I'm happy today. I'm not sure about you, but one of us has a smile on his face. I, I've come to terms with what's about to happen, and not to give it away, but uh, I, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel like we should send you to therapy sessions. Only if my therapist looks really good in a one-piece white bikini. Okay, here we go. We're talking about <laughs> our final two mashups. Uh, we had <laughs> what we were calling the Frightful Four. We, we whittled this down. How many did we start with? How many movies did we start with? 64. Okay. And every week or every week-ish, we uh, narrowed things down a little bit more, a little bit more NCAA basketball bracket style. And we are now down to four films, the North Division and South Division, and then the East Division versus the West Division. Do you want to start with North versus South, sir? Yeah, let's start with the North versus the South, which is your favorite matchup, so to speak. And we had... Eh. Yeah, I mean, because you know, Creature of the Black Lagoon was up against Frankenstein from 1931. And uh, I voted, and my whole family voted for Creature. I know you voted for Creature, but sadly, 55% of the people voted for Frankenstein. 
And all of those people that voted for Frankenstein aren't allowed to listen to Monster Kid Radio anymore. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was going to say, you just lost 55% of your audience. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. No, that's okay. You know what? I love Creature. I know in my heart that it is the best movie ever for me. So we'll just, just leave it at that. I, I've come to terms with this. I watched this pretty closely, and it was close there for a little while while the votes were coming in. But I don't think Creature ever overtook Frankenstein. Never did. Frankenstein had the lead from the beginning and kept the lead for rap. And it was like I was saying our last thing, Creature and Godzilla would have to pull off upsets to move on because um, the, the other two movies are so endearing to everybody in their hearts. It's just there, there, there's so much of that emotion. And also those two other movies have been around a lot longer than Creature and Godzilla. Yeah, I, I've got nothing else to add here. I, I came to terms with it. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I love the 31 Frankenstein. I adore those films too. So it's not like I dislike one over the other, but you know, my guy didn't advance creature from the black lagoon did not advance, but I got a good feeling about Frankenstein, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. The East versus West division. What were the two Titanic movies facing off there, Steve? We had King Kong from 1933 versus Godzilla or Gojira from 1954. And this one was the matchup of all matchups. It was tight all the way through to the bitter end. It was almost, it was who was going to come out of the top. I mean, sometimes I was getting teary eyed. Other times I'm smiling. It was, it was, it was very close. <laughs> very, very close. Especially considering that King Kong was our number one seed. Godzilla was number four when we set this whole thing up. And that was, of course, based on the Top 100 Monster Movie poll that we ran last year leading up to last year's Monster Bash. Unlike the movie King Kong vs. Godzilla, we do have a definitive winner. And that winner is the Monster Kid Radio listener base. No? Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. The Monster Kid Radio base, it loves it. But Godzilla is the winner with 53% of the vote. And you didn't expect that, did you? It's kind of hard to say. You know, I was I knew it was going to be close. I was hoping and I was actually maybe expecting Godzilla to win because by sheer luck, because of the way things, like you said, went longer than we expected. Mm -hmm. This poll did hit when the Godzilla movie came out in movie theaters. So he it was in the pop culture. Yeah, it was more, it had more visibility. Yeah, so the visibility was there. The timing was right for if Godzilla was going to pull off an upset, this was the time to do it. And he did pull off that upset. And it's basically thankful to the, the, the listeners that are voting, which we had the second most amount of votes this round than we did in, in any of the other rounds. So what does that give us for our two, I don't know, what do you want to call them? The, the terrible two? Does that work? Did we already use that? I don't think we use terrible twos or terrible whatever. We can go the terrible two. I'm fine with that. Well, the terrible twos. Uh, we, we've got Frankenstein from 1931 versus Godzilla from 1954. We are able to do here at Monster Kid Radio something Toho was never able to do, a Frankenstein versus Godzilla film. Well, didn't that originally start as a Frankenstein versus King Kong? Wasn't that the original plan? Or something. Or I thought it was maybe King Kong was supposed to be Frankenstein and it was supposed to be Frankenstein versus Godzilla. Whatever it was supposed to be, we now have it here. And we're not talking about the monsters themselves. We're talking about the films, although it would be a lot of fun to imagine what Frankenstein's monster as played by Karloff would look like going up against the original Gojira 
the, the creature itself. That'd be a fun little movie to watch, maybe. <laughs> it would be. It would be. It would definitely be interesting to see like a three hundred foot Karloff. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> Whatever. Oh man, and and I know Toho did touch on the Frankenstein thing. They they did play with Frankenstein. They had their own version of Frankenstein and all that with Frankenstein conquers the world and kind of sort of the Gargantua films. I guess there's only one film, Gargantua film, but. Yeah, it'll be kind of fun to think about. It's fun to think about, and if there's any artists out there that feel like drawing up a quick sketch of what that might look like, I'd love to see it. It'd definitely be cool, but I, mean, I look at it this way. At this point, we can definitively say in our tournament, the number one giant monster movie is Godzilla, and the number one humanoid monster movie is Frankenstein. And now the two are going head-to-head to see which one will be the overall number one of this okay, tournament. Okay, okay. Okay. Uh, classic Universal versus Classic Toho, two black and white films, uh, two giants of the genre, in one case, literally. I'm real curious to see how it's going to turn out. What do you think is going to happen? Keeping in mind that Frankenstein is our number two seed, Godzilla's number four. Well, I find it interesting that Godzilla had to beat the number five seed, the Wolfman. Had to beat the number one seed in King Kong, and now gets the number two seed Frankenstein. So Godzilla's had, if you go by seeding ranks, the toughest road through the tournament, which is to be, you know, that he's passing each round on is to be expected because he is the king of the monsters after all. Right. And he did dethrone Kong. We can't call him King Kong anymore. We must well just call him Kong. Either it's going to be King Godzilla or King Frankenstein by the time this tournament's done. We will have a new champion one way or the other. Being that the Godzilla film is still out, he's fresh on the mind, it's still an upset, but I'm thinking that Godzilla might pull off the upset yet again. But I would, again, I'm not going to be surprised if he loses to Frankenstein because as I think I've said virtually every week, Christopher R. Mim has said, name recognition. You know, and Frankenstein has a huge name recognition. I also think Godzilla has huge name recognition. Yeah, especially now. I mean, especially now with the movie. I'm curious to see what's going to happen. I don't know who I'm going to vote for. I will probably wait until the last minute like I have pretty much every time to make my decision because it's tough, man. Well, to me, it's not that tough. Well, I know for you. (laughs) I'm voting voting Godzilla and voting Godzilla all the way. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. I'm going to be putting this out on this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. There's going to be a lot of call to actions in this episode of Monster Kid Radio because this is also the episode where I'm announcing with Steve Sullivan, the nominees for the 1935-45 and 55 Monster Rally Retro Awards, or the rallies. So there are going to be two things people can vote for. However, since we're talking about the tournament right now, let's set a due date on that of, you know what? We've got the bash coming up. Yes, we do. We can always record the uh, results at the bash. That's exactly what I was thinking. Okay, so we're going to give people exactly one week. This episode comes out on the 13th of June. The deadline for your vote over at tinyurl dot com slash mm madness two zero one nine will be the following thursday june twentieth and then steve and i will take a few minutes at some point during the monster bash which is happening that weekend to record the results and you know what maybe we'll even announce the results at the monster kid radio table just to have something set up there for people to look at but you'll also hear the recording of that the following week or maybe even as a special episode. We'll see. Stay tuned. Don't change that podcast dial. Go, go, Godzilla. Vote Godzilla, everybody. Wow. And I thought it was bad that I was always playing the creature trailer. 
progressive colossus, the voice of world control. Obey me and live, or disobey and die. This is the dawning of the age of... Colossus, the Forbin Project. A shocker, fascinating, says the New York Daily News. A sizzler, builds to high tension. Gene Shallot, NBC Radio Monitor. Razzle-dazzle, smooth suspense, Time Magazine. Colossus, the Forbin Project. From Universal, rated GP, all ages admitted. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. That is an incredible motion picture. An entire town goes berserk when a giant underwater creature attacks all human life. That is a frightening experience. Don't miss that. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I am going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is The Corpse Nobody Knew, from The Crypt of Terror number 17, the April-May issue from 1950. Crypt of Terror was the precursor of Tales from the Crypt. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by George Russos, who was one of Jack Kirby's inkers in the early days of Fantastic Four. He was also Marvel's go-to colorist in the 70s, taking over from Marie Severin. So sit back, relax, and prepare for this mysterious tale. Private investigator Jack Walker and his wife Minnie check into a hotel room. Jack has been working too hard, and he's getting some time away from the office to spend with his wife. But when Minnie opens the closet, a body falls out of it. The body has been disfigured, the face is mutilated, fingerprints removed with acid, and all the labels cut off the clothes. Jack leaves Minnie alone in the room while he goes to tell the front desk. They call the cops. The hotel detective, Riker, hears about the body. He says that the hotel manager, Paul Winslow, left the city suddenly by airplane. Riker calls the airport and gets the details. Apparently, Winslow did sign in at the airport. Riker checked the hotel safe, and inside, all the money was missing. He tells Jack that only Winslow had the combination. Back in the hotel room with the dead body, Minnie decided she needed a little air. Unfortunately, the window was jammed shut. She found out why. There's torn up paper jammed into the window frame. She pulled it out and found it was a receipt for a photo developing company that takes pictures around the city. She sneaks out of the hotel and heads to the photo shop and gives them the receipt. In return, she gets the photo. 
Back at the hotel, the cops are having a press conference. There's an APB out for Paul Winslow. The theory is that someone saw him steal the money and he killed him and hid his body in the closet before he got out of town. Minnie arrives with the photograph and shows it to her husband. Aha, he says, this breaks the case wide open. It is a photograph of the airport check-in desk that shows Riker signing Paul Winslow's name. Riker had robbed the safe himself and set Winslow up for the crime and then killed him to cover his tracks. Jack says that Riker's first mistake was saying that only Winslow had the combination to the safe when Riker opened it himself. Jack and Minnie leave the hotel to go home, where it's more peaceful. The end. I hope you enjoyed that soft-boiled adventure. This isn't really a horror story, it's a detective story. It's a cute little six-page mystery. Of course, there are plenty of loose ends. How did the photo receipt get to the hotel room? Didn't Riker figure they would look for actual witnesses at the airport? Even so, it was fun to watch the mystery unfold. There is one element of the story that was disappointing, though. Considering Minnie is the one that actually solved the crime, it would have been better had her actual name been given prior to the final panel. She's called Honey, Ma'am, Lady, and even Feather-Brained Friend. We literally only learn her name in the actual final panel. And Jack has no trouble taking center stage after Riker is busted. He doesn't say anything about Riker opening the safe until after Minnie has produced the key evidence. Oh, the 50s. However, the couple does have a very good relationship, which is somehow built in just a few panels. They have a little bit of Nick and Nora Charles vibe to them, which is endearing. They have snappy dialogue. It is a real-as-life corpse, Jack says. Only there's no life left in it, Minnie replies. She's a hoot. The art itself is pretty straightforward. There's some good shading on the face close-ups, and Minnie herself looks especially pretty. There's a lot of variety in the panels that show groups of people together. There are over-the-shoulder shots, ear whispers, backs of heads in the foreground framing the action in the background. The posing is a little stiff, but it's standard for the day, and all of the arrangements work. If you're interested in a copy of Tales from the Crypt, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics, and Bat Books for Beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter, at Professor Frenzy, and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. The green slimes are here! Hi, this is Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. 
how about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans. Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horror Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horrors Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. day you look upon them, you will surely die. House of the Gorgon. Why don't you let us alone? Get back on your train and leave us alone. Rumors circling around. Uh, mysterious happenings at night. Uh, strange noises emanating from the dark. Leave Karlstad. Leave now and never come back. Stay away from them. They mean you great harm. Starring Caroline Monroe as the Baroness. What was the sinister secret she hid beneath her dark spectacles? Martine Beswick as her sister Uriel. Malevolent and evil. Would sacrifice all that we've done merely to quench your innate desire for violence. Oh, what if I did? Veronica Carlson as Anna, the one woman in the village of Karlstadt willing to stand against these angels of death. I can fight you. We can fight you. Christopher Neal as Llewellyn, a man of faith locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. If we leave them alone, maybe they'll leave us alone. Also starring Joshua Kennedy as the mysterious Dr. Pritchard. And introducing Georgina Dugdale, Gooey Film's latest star discovery, the Gorgon's most beautiful victim. See all of this and more when you visit the House of the Gorgon. Just you out, every unclean spirit. Every satanic power in the name and by the power of our Lord Jesus I'd like to say it's that time of year again, but really every year we do it at a different time of year, so there's really no such thing as that time of year for the Monster Rally Retro Awards, or the rallies. Uh, the only way we really know it's that time of year is that we've got Stephen D. Sullivan on to talk about the ballot. Hey, here I am, and you know, I think it was kind of a year ago that we last did this. I, I, I don't I was checking my notes, and I, I, I think it was pretty close, uh, depending upon when this airs, of course. Yeah, this episode actually, if all goes well, will be going out 
football in a few days as of this recording. Ooh. So don't don't make a lot of mistakes so I don't have to edit too much of it out of it. Okay, just just I'll <laughs> no try pressure. not brain. Be smart today, okay? <laughs> Okay, Steve. There you go. So Steve Sullivan, man, he is a regular here, or irregular, I guess, is what I've been calling people lately. Steve is irregular, is what I'm saying. Uh, Steve is a regular (laughs) guest here on Monster Kid Radio. He's the man behind so many really cool books like, you want to tell me about some? Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, which you can read free online and hopefully will be out in print by the end of the year. And currently running the serial Frost Harrow Scream Lover, which is the first book in a at least a five or six book series, and that is running serially right now. And you can find it on my site, sdsullivan.com, or you can go to cushinghorrors.com and throw a buck or two uh, my way every month and support me through Patreon. Right on. I've got the promos in rotation as well for various books like that Kaiju Attack and everything else you've got going on. Plus, Steve is an award winner. He won an award for his adaptation of Manos, The Hands of Fate. I did. The worst movie of all time is an award-winning book. So, See, everybody says that's the worst movie of all time. And they say it about Plan 9, too. But I say to those people, you have not seen Fun in Balloon Land yet. I don't think I've seen Fun in Balloon Land. But I have seen, there was, I don't, I blocked the title of it. But it was a, a Bruce exploitation film bruce lee exploitation that is i remember it was one of the worst things i've ever seen it was just awful (laughs) is it the one where bruce lee goes to hell and meets up with like popeye and fights clint eastwood and james bond i don't think so because that would actually probably be more interesting if you really want to know which one it was it is i reviewed a bunch of films in video hounds dragon asian action and cult cinema and that was one of the films i reviewed but I, i can't remember the name of it but the book is the size of a new york phone book used to be and uh most of the reviews were written by my friend brian thomas so you'll actually have to search through the i don't remember 50 or 100 reviews that i did as opposed to the like thousands reviews he did <laughs> it's, it's somewhere in there it's history <laughs> and until i stumble across it again i'm not going to remember the name of it yeah there's some pretty rough ones there was one my wife and i saw recently and i don't even remember what it was that i thought was really terrible but i do a, a monthly checklist of all the films i watch so you could probably actually find it in the listing for the last couple of months on my site Again, sdsullivan.com. There you go. Movies, movies, movies. There are years when I've watched 500 movies in one year. This year, uh, it's probably going to be like uh, 250, 300 probably. Well, the movie I was referring to is called The Dragon Lives Again from 1977. And, uh, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like fun. It sounds uh, like it's, fun. It's, it's, hmm. Speaking of other movies that sound like fun, there's the Monster Rally Retro Awards for 1935, 45, and 55. Thank you for getting me out of that rabbit, that, that rabbit hole. Thank you. And, <laughs> you're welcome. And I know that there are some things that I suggested maybe should be nominated that are going to make that checklist. But I think first there's something else we got to do. Yeah, you know we got to do it. Everybody knows we got to do it. And I really need to create a stinger so I don't have to say this every time. It's time for the Classic Five, which is a game that we play with every guest that comes on to Monster Kid Radio. The Classic Five is a literal card game. There is a deck of cards here in my hand right now and each card has a this or that which movie do you prefer type question. They're icebreakers. They're conversation starters. It's a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio and there are no wrong answers. Steve, are you ready to play? Classic five! Yeah, I don't know if I'll be using that in the future, but I'll let it stay this time. (laughs) What you need is like three-part harmony there and do it to the music of the, the the creature from the Black Lagoon sting. The <laughs> classic 
five. Oh man, man, I wonder. Awesome. I know David Schechter owns the rights to some of the music. I wonder if he'd let me license that out. <laughs> Put that on there. I have been watching a lot of old game shows, like over at archive.org and things like that. Things that are in the public domain, so that I can maybe pull that music to use. But just nothing's really sitting with me. So we'll, we'll there see. You go. We'll see. All right. Well, here we go. You ready to do this? Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to start with an easy one because not too long ago, you suggested one to me. And we're going to use that question. You said, how about this for a question for the Classic Five? William Castle or Bert I. Gordon? Wow. I did suggest that. And yes, I, you I did. ran across it the other day and I thought, oh, what a clever question that is. And, you know, it's a weird thing. I think Castle actually made better movies. But I was looking over their, their list fairly recently, or thinking about their list, and thinking, I enjoy Burt I. Gordon's films more than I enjoy Castle's films. I mean, you know, I like The House of the Haunted Hill, and I like 13 Ghosts, and a number of the other ones, and they're, like, really well-done movies. But there's something about the zany enthusiasm of The Amazing Colossal Man, or Earth vs. the Spider, I'm, I'm going to go with Bird Eye Gordon on this, I, I think. Yeah, like I said, there's no wrong answers. It's, yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. No, I know. watched uh, Earth vs. the Spider just the other week. I was doing a giant bug thing, and I really enjoy that film. I think it's, it's really good, although it's not as good as Tarantula. And I th- honestly think Christopher Mims' The Giant Spider is as good as both of those films in many ways. Oh, sure. In fact, the special effects are actually better in the Mim film than they are in either Earth versus the Spider or Tarantula, in my opinion. Hmm. Ooh, controversy there. Just check it out. Christopher's uh, his uh, traveling mats are better. <laughs> well, Chris does have the benefit of working in movies today <laughs> with computer yes, technology. He does and all that. have the benefit of cool digital tools that they did not have in the 1950s and 60s. So. Interesting. Okay. There you go. All right. Awesome. So that's my answer. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, let's move on to our second question. Actually, going to pull this one from the deck instead of just reading to you what you wrote to me in Facebook Messenger a few weeks back. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right, card number two. Which movie do you prefer, Frankenstein Conquers the World or The War of the Gargantuas? Oh, man. I had a feeling when you said the first one, you were going to compare it to the second one. Now, of course, we all know that The War of the Gargantuas is, in theory, a sequel Frankenstein. Kind of, yeah. In theory, I mean, if you watch the Japanese versions, at least at some point, I think they refer to the the gargantuas as Frankensteins Mm -hmm. in the second film, which in theory, I suppose that makes the Frankenstein monster might be the the, uh, Gaia or Sanda. Sorry, Sanda, I think is Gaira, right? Something like that. I haven't looked at those names in a while. I'm going to go with War of the Gargantuas. The War of the Gargantuas. See the two mighty Gargantuas battle to the death. The War of the Gargantuas in color. Rated G. General audience from United Productions of America. A subsidiary of DEI Industries. The monster battles are so cool. And the green Gargantua is eating people, which is really hideous and stuff. Okay. But having said that... If I could transfer Nick Adams into it and <laughs> play some Russ Tamblin. You know, Russ is not a bad actor, and certainly I, I just saw him in Tom Thumb, where he's pretty terrific. But he's not Nick Adams. And someone said recently on, on a, some show, I don't think it may have been one of yours, was kind of like, oh, Nick Adams, he's not a top-flight actor. I, I totally disagree. I think oh, Nick no, Adams yeah. is really, really good. Yeah. 
you know, and he was good enough to dub James Dean and Giant after James Dean died before he could loop some of his lines. So props to Nick Adams for that. And he is the thing that would make Frankenstein better than Gargantua's. But I love the monster battles, and I love the fact that they both kind of grew out of this one creature, and there are two of them, and one's evil and one's good, and, and they're brothers and all that kind of stuff. So it's really cool, and I always thought it would be great if there were yet an, another sequel to that where the, the Gargantua's return, and maybe uh, maybe somebody could do that. Hey, Christopher. Hey, Joshua, are you listening? <laughs> return of the Gargantua's. From Phantom Lake. <laughs> From Phantom Lake. Just got to throw that in there. You know, yeah, just, almost yeah. out of spite now for whoever said that about Nick Adams, I want to do a series of Nick Adams episodes here. Be Maybe like a Nick Adams November or something. Just to, just to stick it to him. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool. And it could sign me up for every one, one of the movies or TV shows that he's in. He did a handful of them. Yeah. He did, uh, what, Die Monster Die and... Uh, Godzilla vs. Monster Zero, Frankenstein Conquers the World, a movie that's underrated, doesn't get enough attention. Mission Mars, I really like. I haven't seen that in a long time. And he's in a great, he's in the Fun and Games episode of The Outer Limits, too. So mm-hmm. if you included that, which is a, a really good episode. And he did an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I mean, there's enough genre stuff. You know what? Maybe we will. Maybe, Maybe we will. Maybe we will. <laughs> good all right, all right well you gotta have me on for at least one of those I, I, you're, you're in i've got, got your pencil down already so all right <laughs> card number three uh which movie do you prefer the monolith monsters or monster on the campus monolith monsters gee you gotta believe me you're gonna think i'm blind rocks huh? joe towers of rock crashing down and then growing up again yeah yeah a part of the process is the absorption of silica, taking it right out of whatever it comes into contact with, like human beings. Just like Ben, their bodies are turned to stone. What was this amazing power that could turn people into stone, that could suddenly turn inanimate rocks, stones, monoliths, into growing, spreading, expanding monsters, threatening to engulf whole towns and cities, to bury all civilization under an immensity of weight beyond all calculation. You know, I saw them both when I was small. As some people will remember, Channel 5 in Boston used to show classic monster movies late on Saturday night. I think they probably started at 11.30 and then ran until, well, until they managed to finish two movies. I probably saw both of those the first time on that. And the monster of the campus is kind of cool, and it's got some neat stuff in. That's the one with the coelacanth that bites him, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Memory serves, and we've got the giant bug and the dog and that kind of stuff. But the monolith monsters, man, is just so weird. (laughs) They're monsters, but they're just really giant rocks that grow and crush things. And the, the science is kind of absurd on that. But it's really cool, and it's done in this very sincere Universal's 1950s SF monster style. And I just love it. And I, I don't remember. Someone really good directed or something. Jack Arnold did Monster on the Campus, and Monolith Monsters was directed by John Sherwood, who I believe did the third creature film. Okay. Normally, I would, I would pick a Jack Arnold film generally, but there's something about it's just so wacky. That I I love it. I love the things that grow tall and, and crash down. I love the fact that they s- suck the water out of people and turn people to stone. It's just, 
it's cool and it's not what you expect and it wasn't what I expected when I was a kid and it's not what I expect now. In fact, I almost replayed it for myself this last week, except I then just kept doing giant bug movies instead. (laughs) (laughs) But it was in a set with, uh, I think, Tarantula maybe? The sci-fi set, it's uh, one of those two sci-fi sets that came out of Best Buy, has it on it, mm-hmm. with another giant bug movie. So it was either on the same disc with Tarantula or the Deadly Mantis, and I don't remember which. Anyway, Monolith Monsters, it's weird, it's cool, and I really like it. Great, I love Jack Arnold too, but of the two, Monolith Monsters is it for me as well. Lovecraftian in some way, just a fantastic film. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. It definitely does have kind of a Lovecraftian, you know, color out of space thing going on, too, almost. So, yeah. Although, if you hang around with me long enough, I will find a way to turn anything Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lovecraft and or Howard. Well, that's and true. I think, yeah. I think we could both do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although, you've read a lot more of Howard's horror stories than I have. Oh, they're so, so good, man. I so good. I know. I got to get back to him. I'm working my way through the collection. Pigeons from Hell. I tell you, that's solid. And the Black yeah. Stone is my favorite. Yeah, I know. I haven't gotten to that one yet. I'm going to look forward to Well, on his poetry, this is not the Howard podcast. I need to <laughs> <laughs> steer back on track here. Okay. Uh, let's see where we are. Howard was just an amazing writer. Oh, he and, was. You know, he was. I probably said this before, but he's one of my top influences of writer. Certainly, Howard and Lovecraft both heavy influences on me, as well as you know people like Tolkien and Selassie and Robert Robert Heinlein. That's you know probably probably my pantheon of top guys right there. And Howard is among the best. And I read his I read his stuff now, and you know his normal stuff is good. But when you read read his good stuff, it's just like, damn it, I will never write a sentence that good. <laughs> no, he was. Oh man, his wordplay, what he was right. able to accomplish in so few words, his poetry is stunning. And that's all about the economy of words. The other stuff, it's just lean, muscular writing. Yeah. And, and it's muscular and the fact that it's just very few words and it's very active and it, it hits you emotionally and it hits you in an action way. Anyway, you all should read Robert E. Howard. <laughs> you really should. <laughs> Although be be aware, not not as much as Lovecraft, but occasionally there is some some kind of racist crap in it. So. There, there is, uh, and you know the excuse could be made they were men of their time, that sort of thing. Um, yep, and they were, and, and, and that's and just that's the way part it is. of it. Yeah, it's hmm. and they were both living isolated lives, although in kind of opposite ends of the country, and in mm-hmm. times when people were not very tolerant and. You know. Well, in Howard's upbringing, too, he grew up in a small town that turned into a boom town thanks to the oil industry creeping up and all these outsiders coming in, which kind of led to some xenophobia. Maybe not as pronounced as Lovecraft, but, right. you know, just, yeah, there, there is that, though. That said, Solomon Cain had a good buddy who yep. was African. So, you know, right. yeah, absolutely. So, you know there's that, and, too. And Conan had African friends, too. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And he wrote about you the know, Well, I mean, lot. they didn't call them Africans then, but, right. you know, but you knew. they were black yeah who were sympathetic characters so yeah unlike lovecraft where i think anyone that wasn't white he was a xenophobe right he he disliked everyone that wasn't exactly like him and a lot of times that included women and everybody else mental illness is a terrible thing folks and yeah i shouldn't be chuckling about it but anyway read howard he's awesome yes 
Robert E. Howard's the man. Okay, you know what? It, it's fitting that we're talking about this, actually, because I think this weekend, as of this recording, is Howard Days uh, down in Texas. And uh, one of these years, I'm going to get down there for that event. Oh, man, that'd be good. Down in Cross Plains. I know that uh, Karen Joan Kohodic, friend of the show, been on the show. Uh, she is a regular attendee. Uh, she may even be there this year. I'm not sure. I should check in with her so I can live vicariously her. through her. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I want to live vicariously through her Facebook posts. Uh, the nice thing is, though, is that a lot of times, a lot of the panels and discussions turn up on YouTube from Howard Days. So, oh, cool. Yeah, I've watched a lot of those. You know what? We really ought to get back to the monster. I was going to say, that's the monolith monsters, not by Howard or Lovecraft, but somehow related to them. Of course they are. Of course they are. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm going to pull a question from my spreadsheet here of new questions that I have yet to put on a new deck. I, sh I should point out that I have all your existent decks, I think, but I haven't gone through them. But when you pull stuff that I sent you in the, in the email or you pull something out of the spreadsheet, there is no chance I can prepare for this. So let's hope I don't embarrass myself. Go! Okay, here we go. What four classic monsters would you include on your version of Mount Rushmore? Uh, it would be Frankenstein Monster... The Wolfman, Dracula, and the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, that was easy. Yep. Yeah, and I'm going, you know, I've, I could have, you know, subbed in Godzilla for some of those, but no offense to the mummy, because if there were a fist one, it'd be the mummy, and it would all be the universal ones, I think. Uh, and no offense to Christopher Lee or, or Hammer or anything like that, but those are the monsters that still tug at my heartstrings, still get my uh, my pulse going. There you go. They never get old. Is Many times as I've watched those movies over the, you know, the nearly 60 years of my life, I still love them. And it's interesting that, you know, you've been doing this, uh, this uh, monster March madness, madness thing. What are you calling it? The, uh, the monster, monster playoffs. Monster movie madness, something like that. Monster movie madness, yeah. and you're down to the frightful four. And I managed to get three out of the four. And I would have gotten the fourth one if I hadn't voted for uh, Harry Housen stuff. <laughs> <laughs> But it's amazing how many of those have come down to the Universal Classics. Uh, final card, final question. What's your favorite Barbara Steele film? Ooh. Um, that, well, that's a darn good question. I mean, the, the two that spring right into my head are Black Sunday and Piranha. It's Black Sunday, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Piranha just, and Black well, Sunday. Well, no, the reason I forget is because I always Sunday is the Sabbath, so I always confuse confuse Black Sabbath with Black Sunday, and Black Sabbath is the 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 Karloff one and Black Sun. So I really like that. I have a feeling there's something I'm forgetting that I really, really liked her in too. And I guess I'd go with Black Sunday, but is it she's in Long Hair of Death too, right? Yeah, and she did Pit in the Pendulum as well, didn't she? Oh, I think so. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, no, I like that. And she's really good in Piranha. I mean, she's like not doing the... This is the original Piranha. Not, I not know. The, I was just laughing because what what kind of a double feature would that make? That this, <laughs> <laughs> Like something in Piranha, I don't know. <laughs> it's a Barbara Steele double feature. That's how it is. <laughs> I think I've probably said this before. I think she's the, the queen of horror movies. Because I think she's actually done more horror movies and been the monster more times than any other living actress. Or dead actress, for that matter. So, I love her stuff. As kind of goofy as it is to go with something that earlier in her, her career, right off the top of my head, I'm going to go with Black Sunday. Okay. And, of course, you know, later today I'll look over a list and I'll go, oh, why didn't I say The Witch? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, seriously, I'm not going to say The Witch, but... <laughs> Well, that was the classic five. There you go. How do you feel, man? Not too pained. Good, good. <laughs> feel pretty good, actually. It, it, it went well. There are no wrong answers in the classic five, but 
you still won, and your prize is that you get to announce the nominees for this year's Rally Awards with me. Woo! And you promised me some kind of special surprise later on, too. Oh, yeah. So. I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Let's see how that works out. So here's what we do. Every year we honor the best actor, actress, director, movie, and monster of, well, classic genre cinema or not-so-classic genre cinema. And we do it three decades at a time. We have so far done 31, 41, 51, 32, 33, and so on. We are now up to the fives, 1935, 45, and 55. And the reason we do it that way is, uh, well, it's more fun. And it keeps us from having to commit to being on the show for 20 plus years as we get through each every. End- yeah. And it was Steve's right, idea. So we're kind of halfway through with this set. We, we are. And when we're done, when we get to the end, uh, we are going to go back and do the silence. And uh, I would like to do a run of the 60s as well. But we'll get to yep. that in a few years down the line. For now, cool. uh, we are doing 35, 45, and 55. And like I said, this was Steve's idea to break it up this way, which is why he's always going to be the guy that I want to do the <laughs> announcement with. I like that. That means I have a gig for another five years here. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. So the way the ballot's broken down, and this is just because it's how I thought of it the first time around, uh, we do best actor first, then actress director movie and monster and that's the way it should be you know i mean as far as the monsters coming last because oh, yeah. this is monster kid radio exactly that's what we really really care about right <laughs> yep that's the important thing is the monster there you go that's why we're monster kids that's right, right. that's right now this is a little expanded it's it's all of genre cinema so you may see something that's like a horror movie but maybe not have an actual monster uh, there might even be like a dark mystery or two every once in a while, depending on how the year was for genre cinema. So right, or a fantasy. Yeah, fantasy, you know, some science fiction stuff. I mean, it's it's all-encompassing of the genre. We're going to start with 1935. And normally we have had traditionally six nominees in each category. This year we're doing five, and I'll tell Steve why here shortly. Why don't you take the first one? Fire up Best Actor for 1935. We have Boris Karloff for The Black Room. Bela Lugosi for The Phantom Ship, Peter Lorre for Mad Love, Randolph Scott, not usually seen in genre cinema, for She, Ernest Thessinger for Bride of Frankenstein. Some really solid picks here. Karloff in the black room. He plays a double role. Yep. I mean, he's got some solid acting chops on display here. The good Karloff and the bad Karloff. Yeah. And the reason Lugosi's on here for Phantom Ship versus something like The Raven uh, is, one, it's a Hammer film, technically. And two, oh, yeah, I, I guess it is. Two, I feel like Lugosi's range is more on display in Phantom Ship in The Raven. He's the bad guy, which he was really good at playing. And he yeah, is he's a creepy and he's a creepy character in Phantom Ship, but it's not quite the same. It's a different type of Lugosi. So that's why Lugosi for the Phantom Ship is here. And that's based on the mystery of the Mary Celeste, as I recall. And, um, I haven't seen it for a while. I'll have to watch it again. Bela is, as always, Bela is good. Mm-hmm. Peter Lorre, mad love. He's in love and he's mad crazy. So <laughs> there you go. There you he's, go. He's fabulous in that film. Yes, he he's is. really, really good. It's totally worth seeing. Randolph Scott is the protagonist in the black and white version of She, which is a film that was produced by the guys that did King Kong. Yep, Marion C. Cooper and Ernest something. Schrodzak. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah. Of course, so, it's based on the classic novel, She, by H. Ryder right. Haggard. It's a really good film, and beloved of Ray Harryhausen, who even helped supervise a colorized version of it, which you can find on Blu-ray, assuming it's not like out of print or something like that. Anyway, it's a good film and worth seeing, and none of this would be complete in 1935 without Ernest Thessinger as Dr. Pretorius in The Bride of Frankenstein. An underutilized character in all of Universal canon, if you ask me. This this character that he performed, that he created. Oh, just, he's, he's yeah. so good. Man. So good. But, of course, okay, slight spoiler here. Can't bring him back because we'll be blown to atoms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it, it would have been nice to see him, uh, Dr. Pretorius, come back. And certainly... Uh, Sadly, I don't think he's a public domain character yet because of doofy public domain laws that got set back 20 years. You know, if they hadn't done that, folks, we'd have the 1930s and 40s to draw on from the public domain now. Mm -hmm. So write your congressman. Anyway, uh, it's a great role. He's wonderful in it, creepy and funny and just everything else. So terrific. You can write in another person, too. and If you do that, we suggest you enlist your friends so that uh, it's not just like a lone vote for uh, Bela Lugosi and the Raven or something like that. <laughs> true, true. All right, so Best Actress. Again, five nominees. We have Carol Borland from Mark of the Vampire, the Batwoman, the Vampire Woman. She's awesome. The uh, Great makeup, great uh, special effects with her. Frances Drake, who is the object of the Mad Love in Mad Love. The hapless Valerie Hobson, the wife-slash-girlfriend in Werewolf of London, a fine film. Elsa Lanchester as Mary Shelley and the Bride in The Bride of Frankenstein. And I hopefully I didn't just give that away for those of you that didn't know she had two roles in that movie. So yeah, another dual role then, I guess, is what we're seeing here on the ballot, where she played two characters. And I've got a whole thing brewing regarding Mary Shelley's place in the Universal canon that someday I will see manifested as a YouTube video, so stay tuned. With Mary, I don't know if we have any of this stuff. I mean, she is the the mother of the Monster Conservancy and all the monsters to come. So, anyway, Elsa Lanchester for Bride of Frankenstein, and then Irene Ware for The Raven, and she is the, uh, the love interest mm-hmm. in The Raven. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, loved by Bela Lugosi, who is evil, of course. So oh, yes, you can he... imagine, <laughs> you can imagine how that turns out. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. And she's not the only one on the ballot in this category that is the love interest loved by the villain. I mean, you have Francis Drake from Mad Love as well, and right. uh, the way Peter Laurie looks at her through the entire film is just un nerving and she's able to stand up to that that glare i mean i think really demonstrates the presence that she had on screen you know there's a point where she's there and there's a a wax duplicate of her which Mm -hmm. is an eerily lifelike duplicate of an actress and you always think how they special effects weren't that good back then they didn't have you know all this laser scanning so they could reproduce stuff that mannequin looks just like her and and that's important to the plot too so you can enjoy that and you can enjoy her Best director. Best director. Oh, man. Yeah. Some good work here. Some good work. Good luck sorting this out, everybody. We have Todd Browning for Mark of the Vampire, a film that I have some some story problems with, but is beautiful and beautifully directed. We have Lou Landers as Louis Friedlander 
for The Raven, one of the probably top two Karloff Lugosi films, in my opinion. I love that film. Not as much as I love The Black Cat, but I love The Raven and I need to rewatch it. Sure. We have two people, Irving Pichel or Pitchell? I've heard it pronounced both ways. I've heard the emphasis on both syllables. Uh, so I, I don't know either, but Irving Pitchell, yeah. And Lansing C. Holden for She. And then we have, these are all pretty heavy hitters, guys. We have James Whale for The Bride of Frankenstein, the eccentric and wonderful James Whale. Man, the mark that he made on that film as a director is just yeah, he's brilliant, incredible, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. You made a comment about having issues with the story of Mark of the Vampire. Can you kind of briefly tell us what that is? It's kind of spoilery, but I I will mention that uh, Mark of the Vampire is supposedly a remake of the lost film London After Midnight. The original had Lon Chaney in it. This one has Bela Lugosi in it. It has vampires and has all that kind of stuff. And cover your ears for 20 seconds if you don't hear this. It ends up in both films that there are no real vampires. It's just all some kind of a weird setup. And that's unfortunate because I think if they were just trusting the supernatural elements, this would have been a, just a, a that much better film. I think it would be a, a top-ranked classic rather than just a minor classic. And the reason I wanted to have Steve bring that up, listeners, is because there's another film in another year, in another category, that has some similar issues where at the end it's revealed that there's nothing supernatural happening at all. But it still relies heavily on a lot of genre conventions, so I felt it was warranted for inclusion here. But I just right. need to kind of kind of address that real quick. So not to extend my twenty seconds of spoilers too too much, but that explanation that there's nothing supernatural going on, it doesn't even really hold up sure. if you look at the rest of the film. You know, I mean, you have you have Carol Borland with bat wings flying into the scene, and yes, we all know that's done with wires and that kind of stuff. But if that was done purely for the benefit of some character that's supposedly witnessing it. Well, how did they hide the wires? How did she transform from the bat wings to the regular-looking woman? All this kind of stuff. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. And so it's it's a film that I I really love the atmosphere of it. I really love the look of it. I love the makeup and all that kind of stuff. And Bela's great at it. It's one of the few times he actually played a vampire on screen, except he has to come on at the end and says, I was greater than any real vampire or something like that. We've read and we know that Bela did not want that to be the ending of it. And, you know, he does the line and it's, I think it's the last line of the film. It's so disappointing if they just gone with it. And I, I'm sure that some of it is when London After Midnight was done, they didn't really trust that people would buy the idea that there was a real supernatural vampire. So they kind of had to play it up and then reveal it at the end. There's like a Lon Chaney picture too, where he's like an armless man and he's very convincing as the armless man. But then they show you within the film that it's a trick. And part of me is like, well, why did you have to do that? <laughs> sure. Sure. Not to diatribe too much more on Mark of the vampire, but there's a lot of, I guess, legend and rumor about the film, things that had to be cut. Why does Lugosi's character have a bullet hole in the side of his head? Yep. Why was he cursed to be, become a vampire is he you know there's a lot of stuff that you know is hearsay and i don't know how well documented it is i have not looked into it too deeply myself i've just kind of scanned a little bit of the information available uh, i would like to do a deep dive into that film at some point down the line and this is where steve says well i'll do that with you too yeah <laughs> i will happily do that with you <laughs> um and it's a very short film it's yeah, you know it it's like 65 or 70 minutes it's very short 
but it's got all these great vampire shots that turn out to all be a cheat. And I, uh, as a rule, there's probably a movie that I, we could think of that I'll say, oh yeah, it worked there. But as a rule, if you're pretending to be supernatural and you're not, unless you're Scooby Doo, I'm not too fond of it. And I love Scooby Doo, the original Scooby Doo season. So anyway, digressing less and back to. <laughs> The next category, the second to last category for 1935, we have Best Movie. Mm -hmm. We have The Black Room, The Bride of Frankenstein, Mad Love, The Raven, and we have Werewolf of London. So that's a great set of films. And uh, honestly, just looking at it, I'm not entirely sure which one I'm going to vote for. There's some good ones on there. I I love all of these films. Uh, they're, They're all solid solid films so, with a lot of solid acting and a lot of solid monsters speaking of which speaking of which the final category in 1935 we have best monster the bride from bride of frankenstein frankenstein's monster from the bride of frankenstein we have the vampire professor paul christen from condemned to live a film we didn't really talk about before which i only have seen in the last couple of weeks and which is yeah me too a surprisingly good poverty row uh supernatural kind of vampire film we have edmund bateman which is the karloff character from the raven and certainly not a monster in the supernatural sense but a monster in the fact that he's a he's a criminal and a killer and then he gets a, a jack pierce disfigured makeover courtesy of bela lugosi and the raven and then we have the werewolf who can talk and who wears a hat in werewolf of london another great makeup by jack pierce sure so jack pierce is uh, represented in four out of the five nominees here just so you know mm-hmm. uh, and that's not unusual at all because jack pierce was and remains the king of monster movie makeup millicent patrick notwithstanding yeah there's a reason why Jack Pierce has represented so many times. The work that he did was a genius and transcends the ages. It's amazing and he work. kept doing it for a very long time. Very well represented in the 1930s, of course. And I want to comment real quick on the condemned to live monster, the vampire character in that. Uh, I also just recently saw that movie for the first time uh, within the past week or so. Very fascinating film, interesting film. And the vampire, uh, not you know what? I'm not going to say what I was going to say because this one I feel like hasn't been seen as much as say like Mark of the Vampire, which we did spoil a lot of. I don't want to spoil what I'm about to say about the vampire in Condemned to Lift. So moving on. It's probably not exactly what you expect it to be. Right. I don't know about you, but you know, I expect a universal film to be good and I expect a hammer film to be good. And pretty much they always are. There might be one or two not quite so good ones. But when I find a Poverty Row picture, you know, that was dealing with minuscule budgets, crazy short shoot times, that kind of stuff, and it's really good, it's like an extra treat. Wow. Contempt to Live, this is a really good little picture. It's certainly, you know, up in the same kind of category with the Devil Bat and and a number of uh, White Zombie and another, maybe not quite as good as those two. But it's it's definitely more than you expect from a poverty row studio and i just love it when we find those things so thank you for uh, the research we did that allowed us both to turn it up and watch it 
That's great. This is probably as good a time as any to mention how some of these movies ended up on the ballot. Steve was a contributor this year. Every year I do try to reach out to different people to see if they want to contribute to the ballot, have some suggestions, that sort of thing. And this year, Steve was one of the folks that I reached out to. I also want to give a huge thank you to Josh Kennedy, Tim Durbin, Rich Timberlin and Jeff Owens. They all contributed as well. And when somebody put Condemned to Live on the list, I was like, oh, what is that? I don't even know what that is. So thank you, not only for helping us create the ballot, but for giving us some cool movies to discover. We're moving on to 1945. So we're moving to the 40s. The genre film, I guess, I don't want to say community, but the the, the uh, types of movies that were finding themselves being released as genre films or marketed as genre films. Kind of different. There are some things in here that I don't think you would normally consider monster movies, but they still have some of those genre conventions, whether it's a ghost situation or just a flat-out horror movie. Some interesting picks here, a nice mix. And again, we'll start with Best Actor. Starting with uh, John Abbott from The Vampire's Ghost. This was another film that I had not seen before the start of this year. And I don't remember how, I'm sure it was MKR, that somebody mentioned The Vampire's Ghost. You guys liked it. And I immediately went out and bought a copy on Amazon and was like, how do I not know this film? (laughs) How have I never even heard of this? It's another one of those low-budget movies that just kind of snuck under the radar, you know? And uh, it was, yeah, Todd Brown from The Haunted Cinema and I talked about this movie on the show. And I'd seen it before. It was just nice to see it again. John Abbott is the vampire in The Vampire's Ghost, and it's going to be different from what you expect, because a lot of uh, what we think about vampires was shaped by the universal vampire legends, same as werewolves. And so when you get something that's not quite the same, it's nice. But this written by Lee Brackett, I think? She co-wrote The Empire Strikes Back, for those of you that are into more recent films. Anyway, good writing, an interesting story and plot, and and different than what you're going to expect. John Abbott for The Vampire's Ghost. Then we have Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman slash Larry Talbot in House of Dracula. His classic role, and I just watched this within the last uh, couple of weeks, and man, I you know, people get down on Cheney for kind of not, not maybe being the best actor in the world, but you can't prove it by me. Whenever he puts on the, the fur and the fangs and whenever he's doing Talbot, he's brilliant and he's mm-hmm. terrific in House of Dracula. Speaking of brilliant actors. Oh boy. We have Laird Craigar. This is somebody that I, well, actually we should probably say what movies he's in. For Hangover Square. Someone I was not aware of until just a couple of years ago because he he didn't do many movies. He's a brilliant actor, and sadly, he undertook a, a really serious physical fitness regime, diet and fitness regime, and pushed it too far because he wanted to go from being a character actor to being a leading man, and he certainly had the acting chops for it. He was trying to work himself into the looks for it, and unfortunately, he died because of that and died I think before this film was actually released and it's one of like two or three starring vehicles he has and he is brilliant in this and uh, you know this is a a tough category and he just makes it tougher Mm -hmm. so Laird Craigar Hangover Square he uh is somebody that I mean, like I'd seen the name, but never really knew much about him and that sort of thing, or seen a lot of his films. He was on the ballot last year for one of his movies, and I mean, he's just infinitely watchable. And if there's any way to go back and say, dude, 
I know you want to be a leading guy, but you're going to be remembered for this stuff. Take it slower, man. Take your time and don't butcher yourself because you're going to die. Yeah. So sadly, he did. Someone who didn't die anytime near 1945 is our leading man in the next film, and that's Boris Karloff from Isle of the Dead, Yes. which is a great non-monster role for him, would you say? I mean, in some ways... He's monstrous because he's the military man that is afraid of the plague and keeps everyone trapped on the Isle of the Dead in this terrific Val Luton film. And uh, it's Boris. And when, whenever Boris actually gets to show off his acting chops, it's a treat. And he's really good in this. Definitely. I mean, he liked working with Val Luton because Val Luton let him do more than just be a monster. I think he even said at one point, you know, and I could be, I could be misquoting this. I think at one point Boris said, you know, you told Luton, you saved my career because he was basically totally typecast until Luton was giving him these non-makeup, non-monster roles. And he's great in this. And even if, you know, although it's a bit disconcerting to see him with kind of a perm, (laughs) if you ever wanted to see a curly haired Boris Karloff, here he is. And he looks great. And he's phenomenal in anything he does. I, I just love him. And then we have the final actor in this category, Michael Redgrave. For The Dead of Night, he's the ventriloquist in Dead of Night, which is an anthology that I need to rewatch all the way through. I've managed to catch the beginning and the end of it a couple of times recently, but haven't seen the middle sections. But Michael Redgrave, who I think later became, I think, Sir Michael Redgrave, I think, and is the father of Vanessa Redgrave, as I recall, I think. That's all off the top of my head, guys. I'm not looking at Wikipedia or AMDB or anything for that. I'm just making it up as I go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dead of Night is an anthology film, and it's phenomenal. It is, and it actually, weirdly, one of the stories in it is from an H.G. Wells story. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Moving on to Best Actress. Best Actress. Okay, here we go. We have Jane Addams. In House of Dracula. And Jane is, I think, Nina the Hunchback in the film. Correct. Uh, Again, this is a film that I watched fairly recently. I actually watched both the House films recently. And I love that character. I always feel such sympathy for that character that whenever she's on screen, I want things to go well for her. (laughs) But being a a Universal Monster movie, there's no guarantee that'll that'll turn out in the end. So, there we go. We have Linda Darnell from Hangover Square, which is the Laird Krager film. And uh, everyone in those films is good, and Linda Darnell's a fine actress turning in another good performance. Then we have something I'm not sure I've seen. Really? Nancy Kelly from The Woman Who Came Back. I am not sure I've seen this film. I wasn't aware of it either until I started putting this ballot together a few weeks ago, and then I tracked it down and checked it out. And wow, this movie, I really really enjoyed if people can track it down i highly recommend it it is the other movie that i was referring to when i was talking about mark of the vampire having the well maybe not supernatural after all it does have some elements of that not to spoil too much but it's still a really really good film and she carries this thing uh, as a victim as a perpetrator as just a strong woman who eventually gets tired of everybody telling her what's going on uh, it's, it's, a really, it's a good film i really dig it in any case i'm going to try to track it down and watch it too the synopsis sounded really fascinating to me all right uh next we have donna reed yes that donna reed right <laughs> who is the love interest at the end of the film in the picture of dorian gray which is a great film if you have not seen the picture of dorian gray 
it's it's really really good it has uh, a couple of surprising sequences in it and a couple of surprising cinematography moments uh, and Helen Walker for The Man in Half Moon Street, which is the other one I'm not sure I've seen. So The Man in Half Moon Street has some very similar themes to the picture of Dorian Gray. It's about a guy who cannot die living through the ages. And it's it was interesting to me to discover that both of these movies were released in the same year. That is kind of strange and interesting. Okay. Best director. Best director. We have Walter Combs from The Woman Who Came Back. Bernard Knowles. For A Place of One's Own, another film I am not sure I've seen. So this one is probably the least horror or monster of the batch. Uh, There is like some ghost possession stuff happening. Uh, James Mason is the lead in the film. Oh, and, cool. And, and he and his, his wife, they uh, buy an old house, and they find out the reason they were able to buy the old house or the reason why nobody's been in the old house for the past however many years is because supposedly it's haunted. Okay, cool. Uh, you know, another one that I have to, I have to look up and track down and, and see. We have Ralph Murphy for The Man in Half Moon Street. Leslie Salander for directing The Vampire's Ghost. Then we have, uh, you've never heard of this guy before. What did he ever do besides this? <laughs> <laughs> we have Robert Wise for The Body Snatcher. Another Val Luton with Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi. Yeah. And this is a creepy freaking picture if you've never seen it. And, you know, in some ways doesn't have a lot of supernatural elements. But it's a great, great film. Best movies. This is, this is not going to make an easy best movie choice for you guys this year, you guys and gals. Here we go. Best movie, The Body Snatcher. Hmm. Dead of Night. Mm-hmm. House of Dracula. The Man in Half Moon Street. The Picture of Dorian Gray or Other. And I got to tell you, any other year, you'd think the Universal would be a really good bet, but look at these others. Yow. Yep. I don't know where I'm going to vote. Well, Universal did stack the deck here with the best monster category. <laughs> Four of the five are Universals. <laughs> Three of the five are all in the same film. <laughs> right, and then probably Jack Pierce may have worked on some of these. Oh, I don't I'm know. Sure. I didn't look up. <laughs> so, here we go. The best monster of 1945. We have Paula Dupre as the ape woman from Jungle Captive. Yeah. Jungle Captive. There you go. See, I know these things. We have... Best monster, we have... Three monsters from House of Dracula. Which ones are they? Here we go. (laughs) I can't imagine. All of them. (laughs) We have Dracula's played by John Carradine in House of Dracula. We have Frankenstein's monster is played by Glenn Strange in House of Dracula. We have the Wolfman as played by Lon Chaney Jr. in House of Dracula. Then we have the vampire Webb Fallon from The Vampire's Ghost. That wraps it up for 1945. Yeah, which was a fun year to look at because there are just so many interesting, uh, not what you'd consider horror or monster films in the mix that I really enjoyed. And I really hope that people walk away from this episode or look at the ballot and just create a checklist of movies that they need to check out because of nothing else. Yeah. Voting in is fun. Telling us what your favorite is fun, but if nothing else, I'm hoping you can discover some really interesting new to you movies along the way. The films are really, really good. Now as, as a die in the wool monster kid, I, I will admit that I always want there to be a monster and I always want it to be a supernatural menace of some kind. That's my love. But if you look at the movies on that list, 
the movies are really strong in 1945. They're all real strong, and they and you should check them out. Just if you love movies at all, don't just limit yourself to stuff that definitely has a monster in it. Even though, if given choice between movie with monster, or movie without monster, I'm always gonna pretty much always gonna pick the movie with a monster to watch. Well, check out the rest yeah. of them too. <laughs> All right, let's move on to 1955, which was prime time for monster sci-fi. Prime time for the atomic monster age. So we're, we're ready and raring for 1955. Here we go. Best actor. Here we go. John Agar is the faithful scientist from Tarantula in a terrific performance. I yep. just watched that this last week. He's great. Brian Donlevy as the American version of Quatermass in... The Quatermass Experiment, a great film, early Hammer film. We have Richard Denning, Creature with the Atom Brain. Not a Creature from the Black Lagoon movie, as you might have thought with Richard Denning, but Creature with the Atom Brain. Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter. Okay, now let's, I think we wow. talk about this a little. <laughs> oh boy, this movie is disturbing. I've only seen it once over 20 years ago, and it has still stuck with me. It's just a terrifying film. It is. It is, and it's the only film ever directed by Charles Lawton, mm-hmm. and Mitchum is a, a preacher, an evil preacher, who is determined to marry the widow and kill her and get her money from her children. Nowadays, you'll see pictures of people with things tattooed on their knuckles. Mm-hmm. And th- I could be wrong, but I never remember seeing anyone previous to this movie with stuff tattooed on their knuckles. And what he has tattooed is the classic thing that you see nowadays. Love on one hand, hate on the other, and then the two-hand wrestle to see which will come out on top. Man, it is so, so good. And it's Robert Mitchum, which growing up... Robert freaking Mitchum. Yeah, when I was growing up, Robert Mitchum was this kindly old guy that appeared in movies that my mom watched, you know? So to go back and watch (laughs) The Night of the Hunter... Yeah, Winds of War and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. This is a guy who is so threatening that just when he's on the screen, you want to cringe. He's great. Mm -hmm. Great performance. Yes. And we have Jeff Morrow, hero in This Island Earth, another terrific film and a a great color film. Mm -hmm. And uh, Over two and a half years in the making. Yeah, and a lot of cool things and Milson Patrick monster design. Mm Mm-hmm. All this kind of good stuff. So uh, This Island Earth is a terrific film and, and worth seeing on the big screen if you can catch it that way. And the first time I saw it was in the Science Fiction Film Festival in Cambridge, Massachusetts in, I don't know, around 1976-ish, 77. Oh, I would love to see this on the big screen. Just the only time I've seen this on the big screen was the MST3K movie. Right. Um, I was working at the College Movie Theater when that came out and it was shown and I was the head projectionist, so I had to sit there and watch it and make sure it played okay. I was so frustrated. That was a point in my life where I was like, how dare they make fun of this movie? It's a classic, you know? So And it is. It is a classic, and that doesn't mean it's flawless. It, it is abridged in that version, by the way. They, they did cut right. some material out to make it fit, because it is a longer film. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not really long, but if you're shooting for an hour and a half comedy and you have to have robots and, uh, and Mike and that kind of stuff in it, you cut stuff out. Yeah. You want to watch the originals. I love MST3K. I've I've seen them twice within the last two years live, right? So I love them. <laughs> but see the original films too, and this Island Earth is certainly a, a film that's worth seeing, and certainly probably one of the least 
deserving of being riffed. The reason we're kind of gushing on this is this movie does come up again here in this year's uh, categories. It is available, or at least it was available on Blu-ray as the MST3K version, which I did pick up Mm. uh, because it does have a making of about this island Earth on it. However, it is being made available now for pre-order on Blu-ray by itself. And my understanding is that they went in and restored the original, is it Stereophonic? score maybe yeah they went in and redid the score and i know david Schechter, who friend of the show does some commentary work on it it's just going to be a really nice set that is at the top of my amazon wish list man i can't wait to get my hands on it worth a rebuy oh <laughs> yeah because it's it is out on dvd now and it's a terrific film moving on to best actress and we've got some good ones here we have mara corday in tarantula as the uh, doctor's assistant and she's terrific i love her so much no she's really really good and she's she's in a number of films uh of genre films all of which are good then we have um she could have been nominated at least three times this year <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> true second nominee <laughs> and, um, and third <laughs> and third nominee right we have faith demurg in cult of the cobra and then in a separate nomination for this island Earth, which we just waxed on about, which is pretty awesome. Then we have Kathy Downs for the Phantom Room, 10,000 Leagues. And then we have Laurie Nelson as the uh, the scientist in the love interest in Revenge of the Creature. And, she, and she's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, she's terrific. And I totally feel for her character in that film. Moving on to Best Director. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, guys, <laughs> get ready. Mm-hmm. Here we go. And what, just at first glance, might possibly be the toughest choice that we're going to have to face this year. We'll see what happens. And uh, we have Jack Arnold, the great Jack Arnold for Tarantula. Val Guest, the great Val Guest for the Quatermass Experiment. Then you have uh, the little-known... <laughs> no, you have the great Ishiro Honda for... I'm going to make a stab at the Japanese here, and you'll forgive me if I get it wrong. Jujin uh, Yuki Otoko. See, there's a reason why I'm having Steve read these nominees out. That's half-human in the U.S. Well, and, uh, sort of. This is not the U.S. cut. This is the Japanese cut. Now, as we decided years ago on the rallies, if a film did get a different release in America with some significant changes, specifically I was referring at that time to Godzilla and Godzilla King of the Monsters, it could appear on the rally awards twice, depending on, you know, up to us to decide really, you know, are there enough differences? There was no John Carradine in the Japanese cut of this. Uh, This one is a lot more difficult to get your hands on. Um, but it is really good. This is, uh, I believe it's a Toho film. And the, yeah. like Song of the South from Disney, there are things in this that are considered offensive to minority groups. Now, I've seen Song of the South, and I can't speak to how the two compare to each other. Right. But the portrayal of the, the minority islanders in uh, Jujin Yuki Otoko is considered offensive to them now well we were just talking about lovecraft earlier i mean it's it's a product of its time of its culture there are things there that were deemed acceptable by the people creating that art that we may not know and in their offense sometimes stereotypes 
racist stereotypes sneak into things without the people exactly making them being aware at the time that they are racist stereotypes. Anyway, uh, half human. I hope one day we'll get to see it in a, an official release, but well, right now it's really hard to see. Yeah, I mean, for a while it was even considered lost, but it, it does pop up every once in a while in certain screenings in Japan, and there are ways to track it down if you know where to look. It's just probably not the most legal way to do it. Just, <laughs> just going to say that. Anyway, moving on. Next nominee. Charles Lawton for directing Night of the Hunter. It's a shame he didn't direct more. Oh, my God. This is the only picture he directed in his long career in Hollywood. It's brilliant. He never did another one. I don't know why. (laughs) I guess maybe it didn't make enough money or something like that. But there is this one, and you owe it to yourself to see it. It's terrific. It's scary. Uh, It's got great performances in it. And there's some shots in it that I don't think I'll ever forget. Some images that are just, they're kind of almost Kurosawa perfect, if that means anything to you. It's like every shot in a Kurosawa film, if you freeze it and put it up on your wall, it would pass as a painting. And there are shots like that in Night of the Hunter. Yep. And Charles Lawton's responsible for that. Yep. Finally, we have Joseph M. Newman as Joseph Newman for the much-lauded This Island Earth. Not really much more to add. <laughs> So, best movie, we have Cult of the Cobra, which I need to rewatch, because I haven't seen that in a while. The Day the World Ended. It's a good little film with some really interesting performances. It's about the end of the world, obviously. It's right. a, post- a Carmen Corman film. Corman, uh, Paul Playsale did the monster the, design. So. The monster. So, it's spiky and weird and creepy. And awesome. It's got some good performances in it, too. I it mean, does. Oh, Laurie Nelson's in it. Uh, Richard Denning's in it. Anyway, that's it's up for best movie, and you should check it out. Then we have Jujin Yuki Otoko, Half Human, which uh, we just talked about extensively. And we have the even more extensively talked about This Island Earth. And then something that barely got mentioned except for Laurie Nelson. We have Revenge of the Creature, which is the second creature picture. It's in 3D. It stars John Agar, as I recall. Did he get a nom here? I don't think he, he did. He did not. And, and uh, it was directed by Jack Arnold, and he didn't get nominated for Best Director for that film either. Because they both did Tarantula. I love Revenge of the Creature. Don't get me on and, and Please don't take away my creature from the Black Lagoon fan card here. But <laughs> I do feel like Tarantula is better directed and better acted. Really? I do. Because uh, I love Revenge oh, of the I Creature. Oh, I do too. I'll watch it. I will watch it over almost anything in this list any day of the week. I'm just. I love it too. But but you, you and I are creature fanatics. Yeah. We love it. Mm-hmm. So those are the best films. Best Monster, 1955. We have Lisa Moya, The Cult of the Cobra, who's uh, the snake woman, as they're called. That's correct. Ready? Mm-hmm. We have The Mutant Monster by Paul Blaisdell from The Day the World Ended. Anguilas. From Ujira no Gaiakushu. Sure, it is the... Godzilla Raids again. Yeah, it's the original Japanese release of that. Which is significantly different than the U.S. version and actually a much better film. Yeah, when it was released here in the States, originally it was called Gigantus, the Fire Monster, and then finally they changed it again to Godzilla Raids again. And there are changes, so it will be eligible for nomination whatever year that came out, but this was the original Japanese release. And totally worth seeing if you haven't. Oh, it's yeah. on a, it's on a, there's a really good DVD of all the early Godzilla films. Hopefully all of them will make their way onto Blu-ray eventually. And honestly, the reason Godzilla is not on the list is he's not my favorite Godzilla. 
I'm just Godzilla. Oh, you're right. You know? I, I hadn't actually looked down to the end of the list to see that Godzilla was not on. So we'll say that again. It's Gojira no Gaiakushu. Mm-hmm. That's pretty close, I think. Then we have the Metal Luna Mutant from this island Earth. The Metal Luna Mutant, the second classic monster designed by Millicent Patrick, who uh, often had her credits stolen by Bud Westmore and company. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but if you look at the monsters she designed, you can see some kinship between them that you don't see in other Universal products or other monster movies from the time. This is a great one, and only exceeded, perhaps, by the next and final nominee. <laughs> that would be also designed by Millicent Patrick, the Gillman, otherwise known as the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. From Revenge of the Creature. Now, the base design was Millicent Patrick. She was not involved in Revenge of the Creature, but, I mean, they used the base design. They did kind of redo the head a little bit uh, in in this one. um, And partly because, you know, they had a different actor doing some of the uh, above land stuff, but still. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. Those are the nominees, and unless we're doing 1965, I think we are done. Well, we're almost done. Steve, I'm going to spring something on here now. Okay. All right, there are only five nominees in each category, but typically we do six. So, Steve, spur of the moment, no warning whatsoever. Oh, my God, Derek, you're not doing this to me. What am I missing? <laughs> I'm giving you the option right now. If there's anything that you want to add to any of these categories to bump it up to six, let's do it right now live here on the show. The obvious one is adding Kojira, but as you say, it's funny. I agree with you that that is not the best-looking Kojira of the bunch, and it's not even close. Although it might be kind of better in some ways than the big eye Kojira that we get later in the fun movies. There's, uh, I don't think, did Hangover Square make the best movie cut that year? I don't think it maybe did, but. You know what you're going to do. You could put Jack Arnold certainly in the best director category again for the creature. But part of me, you know, we're, we're doing six. Well, you know, I'm I'm taking all these notes down. So no, I, I'll, I'm, I'll put I'm them on there. That, Why not? I'm not sure we need to do that. I think I'm overall, you know, I think I'm pretty pleased with the way the nominees look for all this stuff. I'm not sure that having six would make much of anything a lot better. I mean, there are, there are some places where you could probably do it. I mean, you could, <laughs> you could have Faith de Mergen again for whatever the third movie she did in 1955 was. Was it that came from Beneath the Sea, maybe? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, yes, that's correct. <laughs> wow! <laughs> it's always a nice thing when I get these things right without looking them up. <laughs> you know, five seems kind of nice and tight. And yeah, maybe you don't get your others. But the, here's the other thing about not adding another one. If someone out there has an other for one of these categories that they want to write in, they want to call into Monster Kid Radio, they want to come into the Facebook group, and they want to say, I really think that you guys blew it and that Bela Lugosi should be nominated for The Raven in 1935, I'm going to write him in, and I urge all of my friends to write him in, too. Okay. Or that, what were you guys thinking? Faith Demurg was clearly better than it came from, in, it came from <laughs> beneath the sea than the other two. Well, I think the big one I'm going to hear about is Boris Karloff not getting nominated for the Body Snatcher. I think that's I'm going to hear about. Yeah, I forgot that you he didn't make that cut. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's good in that, but 
you kind of expect him to be good. Anyway, it wasn't just me that made the decisions here. Just saying. Right. Well, and you know, and he's in Isle of the Dead that year too. And it's mm-hmm. just like, right. 1945, which one are you going to pick? He's, he's a minor character, even though he's a, a pivotal character in the body snatcher, mm-hmm. but he's the, one of the main characters in Isle of the Dead. And it's more of an unexpected kind of role for him. Yep. So I, I, boy, I don't know. Like I said, I don't think I would add any. Okay. You know, we've done six before, and I think the reason we did six before is because I had a hard time narrowing things down. But five <laughs> five is traditional. You know, typically I like three yeah, or five Yeah, I know. You were ruthless about this, and I'm proud of you, man. <laughs> good job. Well, you know, I wanted to give you an opportunity, though, to, but if you're good with how it is, we're good. We'll, we'll leave it alone. No. No, no I'm. I'm good. So we will leave the ballot as it stands right now. Won't make any changes to it and we'll call it good. Uh, I believe I've got a deadline set of sometime in July. I'll go over that at the end of the episode during the outro. And again, Steve, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate having you involved. Oh man, you're very welcome. I'm, I'm really happy. You know, I'm, I'm glad that just by, coincidence sheer luck or or right place right time or or maybe brains that i actually said to you yeah let's uh let's gang up three years because one one is just not enough and three will get through it an awful true, lot faster true. well you know the show's <laughs> been going now it was pointed out to me recently that uh, i'm on year six uh which blows my mind uh so yeah um i don't see it stopping anytime soon so i'm pretty sure we're going to get through the entire decade that's 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 the hope and that'd be that'd be cool and i you know i really want to do the 60s because i think there's plenty plenty of stuff there and and how we might divide that up whether we do just two years of the 60s you know we do 60 to 65 and 66 to 70 or something i don't know uh, and that's 11 years, I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. It'll be fun to do the ones after this, too. Even though, saying that, I realize I'm talking about six years from now, potentially. <laughs> well, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we've got plenty of time to get this worked out. And I think we've got some good movies coming up in you know 56, 57. I mean, the heyday of great science fiction films. The end of the 30s had some good films. So, yeah. Yeah, we've got a lot of Harry Hausen films coming up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so if people want more of Steve, again, it's sdsullivan.com where you can find everything you need to know about what he's up to or just look up Steve Sullivan on Amazon. You have an author page set up over there, don't you? I do, I do. There's that. And of course, uh, cushinghorrors.com if you want to go to my Patreon and support my ongoing work, which would be wonderful. There you go. Before Sounds we good. go, yes, sir. I should mention the monster role-playing game. Okay. Which... I am still working on, but uh, as some of you who follow me on social media know, there was a lot of family stuff that happened in the last year, especially in the last uh, six or so months, a little longer than that now. And basically that was put on hold, even though I have a, a strong central design and mostly we're at playtesting and tweaking, but I haven't been able to playtest or tweak for about six six months. And the, the hope and the goal is to get it out sometime after it's really well done and and uh really super to play and e- super easy to play too the the goal is to have this basically playable out of the box in just a few minutes and i think i'm on the road to that i don't have anything posted now but monsterrpg.com should lead to my stuff eventually <laughs> right now it probably just points at my main page the monster rpg will happen at some time and maybe i'll even talk derek into helping with a couple of aspects of that that i might use some help on. That'd be fun. See, it would be. It would be. 
Now, this episode, I'm hoping to get it out next, well, yeah, before the bash. Which means, if you want to see Steve in person and put a face to the voice that you hear in your head right now, come to Monster Bash. He's going to be there. Well, I'm going to be there too, but come meet Steve. Yeah, it's, it's great to meet people. I was at Nexus last week, and there was someone that actually came up to me that knew me from uh, Monster Kid Radio. And I was really happy. You're the guy from Monster Kid Radio and the B-Movie cast. We're like, totally am. Totally that guy. Rare personal appearance, and maybe my last convention of the year. So, if you want to see me, I'll be at the bash. My wife will be at the bash, which is really going to be interesting. And uh, we'll be there the whole time. Well, you got to be there for the U.S. premiere of House of the Gorgon. Absolutely. I am so looking forward to the U.S. premiere of that. My wife is looking forward to the U.S. premiere. I think we're hopefully even going to be able to meet some of the stars. Speaking of House of the Gorgon, I'll mention it here. I'll mention it again here in a few minutes in the outro. Next week's episode will be a recording that I did with Dan Day Jr., who was an actor in the film. Uh, He's been on the show before. He's a, a very prolific blogger. He's an associate of Josh Kennedy. After he shot his scenes for House of the Gordon, a couple weeks later, I got a recording with him, and we chatted about how the shoot went. And that's what you're going to hear next week on Monster Kid Radio, which is the Thursday before Monster Bash. So, cool. The Thursday before the U.S. premiere. So I thought of nice timing. So I, I and we should mention that you did audio work on it too. Well, I've been you did the- I've been talking about that nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> And it sounds good. Uh, that's all I'll say. It sounds good. Right on. And the music is great, too. Oh, I've got the God. Reber Clark's score is amazing. And he's going to be there, too. Oh, awesome. I'm going to have to pick up a poster or something for everyone to sign. Because I don't know. I'm going to want to carry all this stuff all the way out to Mars, Pennsylvania. <laughs> see you there. There you go. Steve, thanks again, man. And I will see you in person in a couple of weeks. The Classic Five! They took a bone in seconds, and now they're here, lusting for blood. Piranha, starring Bradford Dillman, Heather Menzies, and Kevin McCarthy, in a movie so terrifying, you'll never swim in the water again. Piranha, they'll eat you alive. Piranha, Certificate X. Now showing classic Oxford Street, Centre Cinema, and scene Leicester Square. All over London from Sunday. I am vengeance. I am the night. I am Batman. You need to take out the trash. I don't have time for that now. We have two podcasts I have to create a new promo for. What? Both JLU cast and Supermates? Yes. JLU cast where you and I discussed the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited animated series from Bruce Timm and company. And Supermates, our original show where we talk about all sorts of geeky stuff, including our annual House of Frankenstein series on classic horror films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. But how do we combine this into one promo? I have no idea, but it sounds like we're doing our original Supermates promo all over again. I kind of think we are, but hey, other folks kind of aped it, so it must have worked. Well, why don't you get to work taking out the trash, and I'll finish up. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. On JLU Cast and Supermates, both proudly part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, found at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Welcome to an evening with Karloff, the master of menace in five fright-filled features. Watch breathlessly as the coffin opens to release the terror duck. 
<laughs> it's only a gallon, Bowles. The Raven. Join Boris Karloff in the most gruesome day of the undead, Black Sabbath. Chilling delights. Die, monster, die. And who knows? You may die. Laughing at the comedy of terrors. Five of Carlos' creepiest capers in nightmare colors. And you are invited. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. There's a lot. I hope you enjoyed all of it because I had a lot of fun going through it and listening to it and editing it and, well, creating the content. You know, I just love doing this show and having so many people involved. I mean, the two Steves this time around and Jerry and Kenny and Mark and just the people that did the you know, the people who did the segments, just it's so much fun to put all of this material together. I don't mind staying up to like 3.30 in the morning, getting it done so I can get it out to you guys and gals to listen to. I am stoked about the Rally Awards this year. I am stoked about the tournament coming to an end. Let's talk about the tournament real quick. Tinyurl.com slash mmmadness2019 will take you to the ballot for you to pick your favorite movie, Frankenstein or Godzilla, and you've only got a week to get your vote in. This is the shortest period of time we've allowed for votes to come in. So get on it. Get your friends on it. Spread the word. I'm real eager to see who's going to take home the win in the championship. And then the Monster Rally Retro Awards. You can go to tinyurl.com slash rallies2019. And that'll take you to the ballot there. And just to talk a little bit about the ballot, it is not required that you vote in every category. If you didn't see enough of the movies or don't feel like you can vote in a particular category, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Every category does have the ability for you to write in other votes. You know, if something is not represented on the ballot and you want to make sure it gets counted, you can fill out the other. And then like Steve Sullivan said, Mention it on Facebook or on Twitter. Get your friends to vote. You know, kind of feel free to do whatever you feel like you need to do to get your pick picked if it wasn't officially on the ballot. I had a lot of fun putting the ballot together. And as we've done in previous years, only one vote per person. And to ensure that, I'm asking for your name and your email address. I will do nothing with your email address unless you want me to. There is a place for you to check whether or not you'd like to be added to the Monster Kid Radio email list. That is also required. Just check yes or no. If you're already part of the list, check yes or no or whatever. If you put no, I'll take you off the list. There's really not a lot of activity going on with that list right now, but when I get back from Monster Bash, I do plan on ramping that up a little bit as well. The deadline for the retro award ballot. You've got a few weeks, July 11th, 2019. I just mentioned monster bash. By the time you guys and gals are hearing this, I am less than seven days away from hitting Mars, Pennsylvania for the monster bash conference. The, convention for monster kids if you're going to be at the monster batch look me up i'm going to be right there front and center you won't be able to miss me because i'm the first table you're going to see i'm right before registration so please stop by say hi introduce yourself shake my hand give me a hug whatever i'd just love to meet everybody if i've already met you before i'd love to meet you again i'd love to sit down and play around to the classic five i'm gonna bring my deck and if you listen to last year's coverage of monster bash you know that i played the classic five with pretty much everybody that took time to chat with me or sit down at the table at the monster bash i am stoked 
stoked, man. It's going to be a really good time. I'm really eager to see how House of the Gorgon plays to a crowd. I want to hear how it, well, sounds. I'm really looking forward to it. And just, I'm looking forward to hanging out with people. Again, I want to meet you. Look me up. I'm real hard to miss. To get ready for Monster Bash and for House of the Gorgon, like I mentioned earlier, next week's episode will be a conversation with Dan Day Jr. about his participation on the film House of the Gorgon. He was on set. He got to do a scene with Veronica Carlson. You know, I've seen the movie. I've watched the movie repeatedly because, well, I had to doing the sound. I never got bored watching the movie. And Dan did a really good job holding his own against this hammer legend. So Dan's going to come on and he's going to talk with me a little bit about his experiences working on House of the Gorgon. And then, of course, next weekend at Monster Bash is the U.S. premiere. After that, I'm thinking I'll probably have some Monster Bash coverage for you. So stay tuned. I want to give a special thanks to the Hattori Hanzo Surf Experience for their song Kashyyyk Beach Party from their album Meanwhile in Mallorca. That's the song that I use to introduce the Rally Awards, the rallies. It is the quote-unquote official theme song of the Monster Rally Retro Awards, all because of my wife. She heard that song once and said it sounded like a Japanese game show, and I thought, game show, awards, prizes, rallies. So, every year you hear that. So, big thanks to that band, and of course, big thanks to the band The Phantom Dragsters for letting us play their music here on the show as well. And they've got a couple of shows coming up at the Surfer Joe Festival, which is on June 22nd in Laverno, Italy. And then they're also going to be playing in Barcelona, Spain on September 21st at Festa Surf. If you're in the area, check them out. Give them a listen. I bet they sound even better live than they do on their album, which is pretty darn cool. The album is at Tiki Horror Island. Speaking of which, I'm itching to play that song again. So, Remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Septic Eyes that belongs to the Phantom Dragsters from their album at Tiki Horror Island. You can find them at thephantomdragsters.bandcamp.com and pick up the album for yourself. 10 tracks. They're all great. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. I will talk to everybody next week, either here on the show or in person at Monster Bash. Ciao. (laughs) 